over a decade of experience in video games, and all he has to show for it is this stupid podcast. It's Behind the Line Radio, with your host, Kinetic, and it starts now. Hello everyone, and welcome to Behind the Line Radio, a podcast about the making of video games, the business of video games, and the people of the video games industry. I'm your host, Kinetic, a.k.a. Nick. Baron Fang, my co-host, is not able to join us this week, but instead I have a very special guest. You might notice this is special because I'm actually going to give a whole lot of information about him. I have Jason Kaler, who is a 25-year veteran of the video game industry and gambling industry, uh, worked at companies like Sony, EA, and Midway, held positions like art director, creative director, and CEO. Jason, thanks for joining us. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Nick. How you doing? I'm doing all right. And the reason we, well, one of the reasons we got big guns is because we're taking on a big topic that everyone talk is talking about right now. And I appreciate having a bit more insight on this one. Um, EA, Battlefront, loot boxes, gambling, this all starts going off in all kinds of directions. Anybody hearing my voice is probably pretty familiar with the uh, Battlefront 2 debacle, fiasco, something that went <laughs> way off the rails. But um, gambling in video games has been a bit of a, I don't know, it, it's, it, it's, it's felt to me like something that's been kind of on the periphery for a while. Um, so, uh, Jason... Um, do you have any initial thoughts to start us off on this topic? Well, um, sure. Quite a few thoughts. Um, as you mentioned, it's, it is a big, there's sort of multiple topics in there. Um, I tend to think about things like this from a global perspective, especially when you think about gambling. We have a very sort of unique culture here in the U.S. Gambling, is, online gambling has been legal uh, throughout Europe in some parts of Asia, um, you know, since the internet began. It's a very mature, very well-regulated, uh, very some fairly profitable industry over there, and doesn't carry the same kind of stigma that it does here in the U.S. Um, you know, so that's sort of the first piece of the puzzle when you read about <clears throat> news coming internationally or, or various countries' take on how to legislate this new space. Um you know, the, the, the local culture matters, and specifically, remind your listeners, we're in the U.S., and there are a specific set of rules here in the U.S. about gambling, what constitutes gambling, and how that works here in the U.S. on a more fractured state-by-state -state level, actually. Um, so there's a lot of pieces to the puzzle. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to dig into one in particular well, I, th I, th I think you kind of um, struck on something that I thought is kind of a, a, a pivotal thing here would be the definition of gambling. Because with loot boxes, they seem to, like a bunch of people just take it as a given that their functionality mirrors gambling. But by some legal definitions, it doesn't fall under that because you'll always get something. They, they, they act like one of those little uh, prize dispenser things where you don't know what you're going to get, you might not get something you want, but you're going to get something, whereas with a certain definition of gambling, there is a very real chance that you will get nothing. You will just absolutely lose. 
Right. So you you bring up a really good point, and that's that's definitely a good place to start. Is kind of drilling down on on some of the legal definitions, and even before you get into the legal side, let's just back up and think about okay, what is gambling sort of conceptually, right, or emotionally? You're putting some value on the line with a chance of getting something more back and a chance of losing it. And so that's fundamentally what it is. You can gamble in your life with all kinds of things, like running a red light, for example. <laughs> um, there doesn't necessarily have to, you know, the wind is just saving a couple seconds in that case, right? Um, but in, in the legal space, you know, in the, here in the U.S., basically what happened in 2005 is there was an addendum to the Wire Act that made online gambling of all kinds illegal. Before that, we had online poker, and it was it, there was some other online uh, gambling activity, mostly poker. That was all shut down, and it was left to the states to decide for themselves individually what constitutes online gambling. And traditionally, there poker has had a special carve out because it's seen as a skill based game with a gambling component. That's why if you go to Vegas, you know, people, professional gamblers will tell you poker has some of the best odds. It's not just pure random, pure chance. There is, you can be such a thing as a really good poker player, right? Mm-hmm. You can, and it's similar to a video game in that sense. So you know, when you look at the legal definition, now you have to go state by state. Um, the two big differences that people point to between the loot boxes and video games and traditional gambling, um, besides the skill component, is, as you mentioned, that you tend to get something from the loot boxes, although, let's face it, some of those low-end prizes are basically worthless. Or right? something you already have, so in that sense, yeah. you would be losing. You have it, or you can grind it in 30 seconds. Um, so it's, 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 it's sort of a cop-out to me that, 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 that you know some of the systems always give you something. They don't always give you something of value to you. So that would be that would be the part that I would need to see to really differentiate it. However, the other side of this is an even bigger difference, which actually um, is the fact that you can't get real money back out. Right now, actual gambling, I can put in ten bucks and get actual money back out. That's a fundamentally different value proposition than I might get some stuff. That has limited value in a limited econo- you know, economy, a virtual economy, right? Mm-hmm. So the, the now the counter argument is, well, hey, those those virtual items have value; they're being sold right there in the store, right? So we can put a dollar amount on those items, but they're not actual currency. And so for me personally, kind of look at the whole space. I don't give a lot of credence to this sort of loot box as gambling because it's not technically gambling unless you can get money back out right yeah uh, so that to me is kind of where i land after sort of looking at a lot of this from a lot of different directions um but again you know this has to get legislated it's different different jurisdiction the belgians are oh, yeah, this is gambling you know they're going to come down very aggressive on it um ironically being in europe they're sort of the first to condemn it um but i think a lot of this stuff gets mixed up with player frustration around loot boxes in general right so this mm-hmm. sort of all paywall locking of, of of premium content and that so you know it's probably important to distinguish between loot the loot box question and the sort of gambling side of it as well yeah right? it's it it, it 
This is a topic kind of sits on the middle of a bunch of different stuff. Right, and I would add microtransactions in there as well. Right, because right. one thing I was I was also going to ask, uh, coming off of your th- thoughts there, is if, um, say, you know, you said that if you don't get money back, it, it, it's kind of a different thing, and, and if you're getting stuff that's worthless, it, it affects things. Would you say um, the, the inclusion or the uh, mechanic of using an in-game premium currency might affect it? And to, to, if the in-game currency is only used for this loot box or gambling-style mechanic, and I'm not str- strictly talking about um, uh, Battlefront here, but in general, conceptually... If you have an in-game currency, a premium currency that can be used for multiple things, as well as a um, uh, whatever gambling adjacent mechanic we're talking about, would that change the calculus to you in any way? Well, now it starts to get a little bit more interesting, right? Because you're talking about a virtual economy with a virtual currency, and there's an argument to be made that currency has more value than simply to, to unlock, you know, a single um, set of assets. So I think conceptually on a, with a robust enough virtual economy, um, something like credits on Amazon or something, you know, maybe it starts to carry weight. Um, mm-hmm. but fundamentally, you know, you're still localized to that, that space, that marketplace, uh, in these games anyway. I, I think this is a big topic we're not going to solve, you know, anytime soon. We'll have oh, more. Well, we're not going to be able to solve it right now? That's what I brought you here for, man. <laughs> well, I'm talking about <laughs> culture over the next, you know, couple, probably five five years at least, as we see the evolution of cryptocurrencies, virtual currencies, virtual marketplaces, and the, and the video game industry it's evolves yet again to sort of try to reach some kind of parity with the fans, the developers and fans have to figure out where that sweet spot is, that crossover of value. Uh, it's going to, you know, and, and in the introduction of new mechanics and new technologies only sort of aggra- potentially aggravates that, as we've seen with Battlefront and, and some others. Yeah. Um, another another aspect coming off of, of your thoughts is the difficulty um of dealing with all the different laws in all the different regions, because then for the most part, it seems to me that you're going to have to target um, whatever level of gambling adjacent mechanic. I'll just keep calling it that because what it is hasn't been settled. Um, whatever level of gambling adjacent mechanic you're going to be using has to comply with it. it you, you have to identify how far or what kind of market penetration you want and if it's going to start running afoul of laws in a certain region then are you going to modify the game for that region or are you just not going to support a release in that region yeah you bring up a good point if this goes further uh then developers will have to potentially address you know the sort of the patchwork nature of of that legislation here in the states i don't think we're going to have to we're going to go there i, I think this is this is smoke around the, the problem of the loot boxes mm. and the bad design by EA. Uh, <laughs> it, it, it's just, uh, it, 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 it's hyperbole. This is not gambling when you're, you know, optionally making a purchase for some random object uh, in a virtual space. I don't think, I just don't see it going forward. Right. Uh, and, and speaking of uh, uh, the, the battlefront poor design and so forth, um, it, it seems that, uh, or at least it's been reported supposedly, that one of the uh, developments there that 
EA removed microtransactions from the game uh, may have been uh, brought about because of pressure from Disney, who's you know holding right. the keys to the Star Wars kingdom. So it's that yep. that there is an example of how far you can push um, user goodwill. Yeah, did they have the the most downvoted Reddit thread of all time? I yeah. think <laughs> the EA response to this. It's been a complete fiasco, um, and you know it it just speaks to uh, this this whole question of what you know who's really um, pushing the boundaries uh, in terms of um, how this industry works and what players will put up with. Um, where the value is, uh, and how we transition from a traditional kind of $60 inbox, um, you know, economy to something else that is still taking shape. Um, and, you know, it used to be, I can remember even five years ago, it was unthinkable to have microtransactions in a, in a, in a pay, you know, a $60 console game. I think Forza might have been one of the first to do it, and they got smacked down. People just really reacted heavily. This was three or four years ago now. Um, and, you know, <laughs> EA is not beyond trying it again. Yeah. Uh, and no, nor are others. You know, we should be clear here. Uh, Shadow of Mordor or um, the uh, Shadow of War, the new yeah. Mordor game has them. Uh, with pretty clear, you know, sort of gimping of in-game progression to incentivize purchases. Uh, I'm playing that one right now, and it's it's pretty obvious that they I'm getting into a grindy zone where they want me to, to buy more uh, more stuff. So, um, you know, we should be careful not to pick on EA here. It, you know, developers, the cost of games have gone up. Um, you know, we've got 100, 200, 300-person teams uh, here in the Bay Area, you can imagine just what what these games cost to develop a lot, uh, a lot, and um, you know there's there's a, but there's a fine line. These co- companies are designed to be make profits, um, and it, they need to you know they sort of have a legal obligation to their shareholders if they're public companies to maximize you know shareholder profit. On the other hand, um, when does that turn into sort of greed or predatory design that can then backlash? And have have the opposite effect, both for the game itself, the license in this case, uh, Disney, and potentially the parent company, as well. Yeah, uh, and, and and it doesn't help with the whole uh, public perception of EA after the cancellation right. of uh, Ragtag, the uh, the Star Wars, um, uh, absolutely not uh, uh, Uncharted game which <laughs> I, I looked into it and that like the cancellation for that one seems totally justified but everyone's going to be pissed about it anyway so sure and this comes to a bit of uh, the question of how are you managing the your brand as a publisher you know so yeah and unfortunately you know brand management is, is uh what my experience working with with these really large companies in the in- industry is that 
that's often the voice that gets sort of shouted down. Um, the guy who's projecting next quarter's profits is, is the one that gets listened to. So if you've got some fancy charts that show that you're going to make all this money from the box and then you're going to make all this other money from in-app purchases, uh, that's what gets people's attention. Yeah. Not, not, hey, guys, you know, let's let's slow down and think about this a little bit. Have we thought, you know, we looked at what's happened in the past when people have done this? So, I mean, really basic questions um, seem to have been overlooked. I, I'm confident they were voiced because EA does have a lot of very smart people and they're fairly good sized, but I don't think they were listened to at the end of the day, obviously. Yeah, this this actually gets onto a topic that the Extra Credits crew tackled just this week. Uh, they, their latest uh, video in their main series is titled Losing Player Trust and about paying attention to, are you looking at your bottom line or are you going to look at other indicators that show how much players actually believe in you, uh, trust the franchise you're releasing, and so forth. And and that kind of just hits the same thing, because players can be really pissed about something and still buy your game, so if all you're looking at is the bottom line, it's you're not going to see a problem uh, until the floor falls out. Yeah, and, and we, it's preventable. You wouldn't see the problem until the, the, the next game. Um, and I guess the presumption is that if they... Are playing and then or especially if they're engaging with the DLC or in-app purchase content, then they may grumble, but they're they they feel like they've got their value because they're playing. Um, so I know for like Destiny, for example, um, they've been losing players fairly rapidly. There's some YouTubers that watch very closely what's going on with that community, Destiny 2 rather, and. Um, you can bet that the developers themselves these days look at a whole host of variables from, you know, how many people play a every day, uh, DAU, daily active users, uh, to, you know, average session length, to average number of in-app purchases. Uh, you know, there's it's, it's a whole science now to monitor uh, player behavior um, post-purchase or download in the case of mobile. So I can definitely assure you that the developers um, of Battlefront, in particular, these big, all these big AAA games, are looking at their numbers. Obviously, part of that is revenue. Bottom line, as, as you point out, that's you know one of the most important things. But also things like you know, are people playing consecutively? Some people playing every day. That's a great indicator that you've got a fun game if people come back every day in today's busy world, right? That's why so many of the so many games incentivize you with a little bit of free coins to come back the, the in consecutive days. Or you just total number of days played. If on average people play your sixty dollar console game, they get, you know, the thirty to forty hours out of it. Um, that's sort of generally considered to be the the sort of standard handshake. If people are playing 10 hours and not playing, you can expect, and then not playing again, you can expect that you'll have some angry uh, customers on your hands. Mm. Um, so, you know, with multiplayer, that, that extends that, right? Um, and so you see it's a little bit harder to figure out with multiplayer. But in general, there's sort of an unspoken value proposition there. Uh, so yeah, you have to look at our um, people. You know, is, is there are you are they playing your game, but they really are angry about some aspect of the game? 
Um, that seems to be what's going on with Battlefront. It's not, you know, from what I understand, sales are, are fairly strong still, but there's a highly vocal, not minority, significant portion of the user base that, that's quite angry about the way that, that the, some of the content's locked behind, you know, these paywalls. Mm-hmm. And that, <clears throat> some of what you're going up is it, it, it kind of strikes on topics that, that we've covered here before with, uh, uh, you know, are people continuing to play? That touches on analytics, which which you can get some some you know business intelligence off of, or you know are are they always coming back? Having your sort of daily login bonus, that's a sign of, of uh, games as a service. Um, but but one one other thing that I wanted to kind of to touch on here before we get too far from it, you mentioned um, like uh, Forza being an early game that had in-app purchases and. There's an, actually a much older example that I like to point out that that um, uh, uh, kind of explores where the line is of what you would think is acceptable for for uh, in-game transactions, and that's uh, Street Fighter Three Third Strike, in particular the online edition that was released on PlayStation Three years ago, mm. because that one had an option that you can either uh, uh, beat the game as every character on, I think it was like a medium difficulty setting, because, you know, uh, Street Fighter has that like zero to nine stars difficulty setting. I think it had to be at least four. And beat the game with every character on that difficulty setting to unlock Gil, the boss. Okay. And and, and Gil, I, I, I always say it about him, Gil is an absolute son of a bitch, so why wouldn't you want to try out playing as him? Uh, but uh, he... Um, the, the thing is, you can either do that, or there was a $2 purchase that would unlock him. And, uh. and that, that is an interesting value proposition because, okay, this, this is the point that I think is... It, I, I use it as an example because it is an in-game purchase, but it's on like the, the very far opposite end of the value spectrum, where, where it's like, okay, look, you do have a path to do it. It will take you a ton of time to do it, and it's going to be possibly really annoying because you're going to have to like keep grinding away at characters you're not here to play in order to get another character that's in a game that you paid for already. Yeah. But it is still like a progression unlock. Or you can give this very little bit of money to just get straight to it in the game that you purchased, you know? And and okay, so this is a mechanic that let you skip some content progression, but it's in the game you purchased. Or um, another example along those lines would be, um, uh, say, like Rock Band or Guitar Hero type games. Or even Dance Dance Revolution, you know, those kinds of songs with song lists. And at a certain point, there's a question, why do I have to play the single player to unlock the songs? We all know how this works. Can I please just have my songs now? I don't want to play these other songs that I'm not interested. Please let me get at the songs that I want. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that, that, I hadn't thought about the Rockman example, and I didn't, I didn't know about the Street Fighter either. That, that, that's pretty interesting that they were doing that early on. Um, for me, I like, I personally have some lines in the sand. So, for example, I don't have any problem buying, uh, allowing people to, developers putting in content where they can buy stuff to speed along the progression of a single player experience, right? That's if people have more money than time, and that's how they choose to play the game. God bless, right? I have no problem with that. It's a, it's absolutely up to the player's choice. It doesn't affect anybody else. 
And if they want to buy the, you know, the unlock to speed along, that's great. If it, where it starts to have problems for me is in the, if the, uh, if the amount of grind is purposefully, um, turned up so that you'll never get forward or that content is not optional, but it's required. And they really, you can tell that they've slowed down the progression. I think someone discovered that they were gimping the XP in Destiny 2 as well. So they, the, the curve wasn't linear. Like the higher you went, the slower you were acquiring XP to encourage you to get. <laughs> so it was logarithmic. <laughs> Sneaky stuff. Uh, if those kinds of games, you know, really, I think, cross the line. Um, back on the other side, purchasing, uh, just cosmetic items in a multiplayer game, that's great. I think, you know, what Riot did with League of Legends was brilliant. They never, you know, they never strayed from the core formula of a free-to-play game. You can buy all this cool stuff, but it's totally aesthetic. There's no pay-to-win, um, and so that that, that preserves the, the the gameplay. That's fine. So you you know you kind of have to get in there and sort out. You know, for me, I, I've sort of come up with a formula for when this stuff I think is fair for players and when it's not as a developer. Um, but obviously there's no set rules and each company is going to do its own thing. Hmm. So I, I think one of the tricks with that is, um, like if progression has been gimped in order to incentivize, you know, paying for something for, for one thing, how, how do you, how do you know? Cause there are games that don't have, uh, in-app purchases or anything like that, uh, that do just have crappy progression curves, uh, <laughs> right? Because uh, and and to kind of um, expand on that a little, uh, although we, we you may want to answer that before we kind of get into this other one really deep is uh, separating between the single player and the multiplayer is something giving you like a competitive advantage in multiplayer. Like if it's limited to single player, it I'm I'm not sure how a consumer can say with a reasonable degree of certainty that the single player progression has been gimped. So uh, in your first case where you have a game that doing that uh, purchases just bad, you know, uh, progression curve, that seems like another topic right now. We're out of the coercion to buy the, the stuff and we're just in the bad game design camp, right? Cause there's no way that the, the, the player can't do anything other than just fight their way through it. Uh, if I understood your what you you're talking about properly, mm-hmm. uh, in the case, what was the second the the second topic you brought up? Um, how would they know? Yeah, so players, <laughs> how would they know? So uh, you know, the communities, it, it's an interesting question, right? Because a lot of the stuff happens under the hood, or you know, the developers are turning knobs back on the servers. Uh, or they're specifically designed to be, you know, obtuse. Um, but video gamers are a pretty tenacious lot. It's a, you know, we tend to be a pretty engaged uh, group, especially the the hardcore audience that tends to drive these discussions. Um, and I know in the case of like the the Destiny Two stuff or the Star Wars stuff, people are, you know, spending significant amounts of time analyzing the product doing run-throughs, you know, writing numbers down in Excel sheets and mm-hmm. really, you know, figuring this stuff out um, based on maybe what starts with an intuition and then, you know, uh, is further uh, 
develops through the community and sharing of information. Mm. Right, because that's one of the problems. You develop these communities. Every developer wants a, an active community around their game. Uh, but if you piss them off, well, now you've got a mob, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Um, what, what, okay, so the yeah, another thing that I, I kind of wanted to mention with the, the, the PvP thing, which, which can get a little weird sometimes, uh, I follow Ask a Game Dev on Twitter uh, because, well, frankly, they do what I want to do and they're better at it, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay. uh, with with what they try to explain and, and, and questions to answer and so forth. But um, one of the questions came up about um, like selling an item that can give a, a, an advantage in PvP. Is this good or bad? And and or how do you defend that? How do you does that make it pay to win? Right. And and they pointed out well. If you have a good matchmaking algorithm, you're just going to kind of bump up into a different group of players, and then you're going to be, you know, winning and losing about fifty percent of the time. Anyway, I, yeah, I so that's an interesting counter argument. Uh, I mean, I'm not sure if you're aware. There's a whole debate around ranked matches or not. Um, there's a lot of pros and cons for doing ranked, and so I don't think you can guarantee it. I mean, depending on the particular game, they just added it to Call of Duty, for example. Hmm. Um, but, uh, I personally just, that's a big if for one ranked matches, ranking is a complicated algorithm. Typically you want to do more than just level. You want to look at things like location for low latency, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and you want to look at things like friends, grouping friends or, uh, you know, people with uh, similar in-game, uh, allegiances. So there's a lot of, typically a lot of variables going to rank matchmaking, and if they are, uh, if a particular asset is and it does upset that balance, it's it's not a great. Even if somebody on the other team has the same BFG, it, it's not a great experience for for the person getting blasted by it. Um, so I tend to fall on the side of for PvP. I'm a purist. I don't want any abilities for anyone to, in that I want everything flat I want it to all be all about the response time and, and my reflexes I mean ever since I, I you know in an early call of duty I, I turned the corner fired on a guy who was facing the other direction and he turned and fired and his bullet hit me first because he had like speed bullet or something <laughs> I just I just said no this I'm never this is this is not you know I, I need online PvP to be pure and um, if you look at the really successful games and, and they all do their best to sort of level the playing field and then they'll add something on top of it like in, in destiny they had the crucible and you could bring in your gear and it was just all about like okay we're being clear here that there may be a guy who spent a thousand dollars and he's wandering around, you know, uh, OP. But um, if you, you know, if you want a, a traditional pure, you know, match, we have that first and foremost. Um, so yeah, I, I'm not a big fan. Uh, uh, not, again, the cosmetic stuff, knock yourself out, right? Buy the funny hats and and you know the tokens on your guns, and and I think developers should be able to sell that stuff all day long. Uh, I don't have any problem with cosmetic um, in-app purchases uh, that don't affect the core mechanics of the game. 
right. I, I, I would say, um, and, I, and I, I'm not even sure if there's an example of something quite like this, but um, one possible uh, uh, wrench in, in that particular guideline you laid out is if, let's, let's just say, for example, in TF2 or something, you have to progress a certain amount to unlock one of the one of the um, uh, character types. Like, I really want to play the spy, but I gotta win like I gotta be on the winning side for like ten matches or something, and I suck at everybody but the spy. Or I can pay f- for that to unlock it. Does that like? Because because I, I I see there being a a a path here, whether or not it even exists. I I see a path for. Kind of what I was saying before of, I bought the game, I want to play it in a valid way that I paid for it. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know if you would see that as unbalancing or uh, uh, just advancing progression that isn't a pay-to-win style. Right, yeah, you definitely bring up an example that's a little bit in the gray area, although in, the case, in that case where you're literally unlocking a character type, I think that would would be okay because that's part of the you're gonna have spies running around in any given match, right? Because there are guys that have played long enough to get the spy. Um, so presumably the developers have balanced it for that character class. Mm-hmm. I'm talking about things like weapon upgrades or armor upgrades that you know you can only buy for 1995 and you become a damage sponge and. And you know the little the, some some you know eight year old with his dad's credit card is you know, <laughs> stomping around, unbalancing the game, or you know any variation, anything like that 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 um, sort of goes beyond character class uh, and affects abilities. Um, now, in the, your example, if the developers hadn't balanced the spy, if the spy was you know level ninety nine, they only expected one percent of the players to get it, and um, you know, so they didn't balance the game for that class, then, then I would put him almost more in the weapons category mm. and say, let's leave that out of it. A lot of it comes down to what's the expected kind of, play, you know, when you go to play balance the game, what's the average range of abilities, characters, powers, weapons, etc. Um, so it's not uncommon these days in PvP for them to you know the developers to have a new version of every all the armor all the weapons where every single variable is exactly the same hmm. right so you're running around your you know and it's, it's they're the same for class so things like spread on a shotgun will stay the same but the total damage dealt if with a direct hit is is this is also the same across uh, um, classes so it you know it doesn't really matter what you have, um, but there are some subtle differences like drop range drop off and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Like obviously a sniper rifle is going to shoot further than a shotgun, uh, <laughs> right? But a direct hit would do the same amount of damage. Um, so you know that that's one way to really just kind of make sure that people have a, a pure experience. Um, and it, it you know it feels good if if the games balanced properly and most like I said most developers have kind of learned that lesson um, but doing a, a really great ranked mode is also you know kind of it's a, you know, can also be satisfying because you built up this cool character with all this cool stuff you want to take him out there and kick some butt yeah. um, but we're a little, little far afield of the loot and gambling topic um, <laughs> <although> <laughs> that that happens 
it, well, it all ties together too. Like we said, you know, if if someone is able to sort of go into the shop and open the wallet and buy a bunch of stuff, um, that gives an advantage in PvP. I think other players, you know, will notice pretty quickly and tend to leave pretty quickly as well. Yeah, well, another one of the things that, that of course, that we've kind of been dancing around, too, that, that's, you know, a bit more uh, directly locked to the, the Battlefront controversy is the concept of pay-to-win. And yeah. if, if you take some of the uh, um, sort of matchmaking algorithm into account, you say, okay, let's imagine that we have perfect matchmaking algorithm. Do you still call it pay-to-win? Because if if... And let's let's just like matchmaking algorithm is 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 very difficult. So let's just assume we have this wonderful matchmaking system, and you can have a rank thing, but like like world leader ranks are the, are a separate thing. So we'll take that out of it because let's say it, the matchmaking algorithm can correct for your relative placement. Yeah. But your absolute placement, like say top one in the world, if you have someone that just pumps like a million dollars into the game and, and gets competitive advantage over everybody, let's also just cut that end of it off. So we're only talking about. So this is a pure hypothetical. Uh, and say that, okay, well, if you're in world leader matchmaking ranks, like world um, leaderboard type stuff, you're, you're not allowed to bring any of that in. So we're just taking that out. Is that is would that still be pay to win? And I ask that because the way I see it, I th- a little bit like the definition of gambling, we're operating on some assumptions when it comes to the definition of pay to win. Because there's a game like this where you can pay, and it might, it may or may not give you advantage depending again on the matchmaking algorithm. And then there's a game like Game of War Fire Age where you're going to run out of stuff that you can do, and you have to you have to pump money into that to be competitive. Like that one really, and the more money you pump, the more competitive you can be. Like there, it's it's almost like an inverse where your your skill might be the lesser determining factor compared to how much money you can put into it to accelerate your construction or attack again or whatever. Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's it's interesting you brought up Game of War. When you get into the mobile sort of free-to-play space, there is definitely a different mentality. Um, I think most of that comes down to the economy of these things need to be fr- mostly free to download and so, therefore, they can be more aggressive on the in-app purchase side, right? Um, because you paid nothing up front and you're getting this amazing game uh, for free, you know, that that's not sustainable. There has to be a, a way that, to generate revenue from the game, right? So, that's, that's what I always say is business got a business. So eventually, someone's got to pay the piper. Exactly, but unfortunately, we've seen this bl- blurring. It used to be, oh, sixty dollars, I get the whole game, right? And over here, it's free to play, but they'll get me later, or I can decide if I want to pay later. Uh, now we're seeing the, the two crossing over. Uh, but back to your original point, let's assume we have perfect matchmaking, um, and kind of look at unpacking this question of pay to win. Um, I mean, again, for me, on single-player games, I don't really have a problem with any of the pay-to-win strategies that exist. I wouldn't necessarily, you know, equate. I think you really have to, you know, separate out single-player from multiplayer. Single-player, again, you know, I'm a I'm a busy professional. I got a couple hours a week. I really want to get that new castle. 
I'm not hurting anyone. Nobody knows. I just got to see. Oh, <laughs> here's five bucks, you know. And, and if the developers can design something that's enticing and, and, dare I say, coercive enough to get me to pull out the credit card, God bless them. They deserve the five bucks, right? So I I, I don't have a problem with that on, on the single-player side again. Um with multiplayer, now you talk about okay, do we have a perfect we have a perfect match ranking, and do we allow people to buy items that have uh, that do affect gameplay, with the assumption that the ranking system can compensate for that? Is that kind of the proposition? Uh, that, yeah, yeah. So 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 is it okay then? To buy a gun that for ten dollars that does you know twice shoots twice as far or a scope that you can only get uh, through purchase um, if indeed the ranking the match ranking system uh, is can compensate and I think you know I, I think hypothetically sort of abstractly off the top of my head I'd say yeah. Because by definition, your rank match making system is balancing the two, uh, but how it does that is is a really interesting you know problem. For example, if I buy that scope, the 10x scope that that nobody else has, unless they buy it, do can do, does there have to be somebody on your team who has the 10x scope, or is the flamethrower considered to be equivalent in the game, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, then it would be, if, if you said it was equivalent, then, okay, anybody with a flamethrower can match up with any team with a scope, and, and the game will say, that's good enough. Um, but if the guy's up in the tower just picking off the whole team with his 10x, like, that sucks from a gameplay perspective. So you can't equate the two, right? So, and that's just one, you know, arbitrary example. Sure. It, 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 it's back to that question of how do you actually create a fair and balanced you know team you know multiplayer pvp experience sounds like you'd almost have to give the other side a scope right a 10x scope and the more constraints you put on matchmaking this the sort of worse the system works mm. so mm. you can think about this from a mathematical perspective right you're you're online you're like i want to play i want to I go shoot some guys in the face and it's going okay who who are we going to match you up with and it's looking at all these sort of variables, and it's got to far the more variables it's it's got to satisfy, the longer it's going to look and potentially wait mm-hmm. for that guy who's in your area, who's got your skill level and the scope, right, to be online at that moment, right? Okay, satisfied, ding, you're in. Whereas if you know, let's say there's no requirements, it just automatically gimps everybody's weapons to a flat line. Uh, they can you know, put you in a room right away because everybody's the same. Or, or another way you might put it is that the more restrictions you have on the matchmaking system, the larger a pool of players that you need to be able to satisfy those constraints and make a pleasing and fun and engaging uh, player versus player Absolutely. experience. And if you're going to make this, quote, ideal, unquote, matchmaking system, that would actually reflect a... Uh, a critical mass, a minimum critical mass that is so large that it's not reasonably sustainable. Right, right. So what in practice happens is, you know, your your community over time will will degrade and you'll, you'll lose players. That happens mm-hmm. every, and the wait times go up. And so because the wait times go up, you lose players. It becomes kind of a vicious circle. I've seen yeah. that happen. 
kill some multiplayer games. Yes. So you know, and, and in a first-person shooter, you can't even you know, you can't really even use bots or some of the other techniques that um, some of the some of the other games can use. Use, uh, for example, in our multiplayer bingo game. Um, we want to make sure that you can play within 30 seconds of logging in, and if you don't have enough people, we just throw some bots in there. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's and it works fine for a bingo game, right? It's yeah. not going to work in Call of Duty, <laughs> for example. Um, but it's an interesting question. I, I haven't thought too much about trying to build the perfect match ranking system. If that would allow you, you know, if that would open up some in-app purchase po- possibilities. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's uh, it, certainly those games that have both standard multiplayer and ranked matches, like Call of Duty does now, the new Call of Duty now. Um, they they're they're you know continuing to iterate and improve on um, what that means, mm-hmm. and uh, frankly, it works fairly well in the latest Call of Duty. Uh, Call of Duty, I think, mostly a lot of it has to do with their return to World War Two. And the fact nobody's running on walls or jetpacking, and <laughs> you know it's it's great. It's it's a lot of fun. It's boots on the ground again. You're sloshing around the mud, and it's also low tech that like there's not you know an upgrade doesn't really turn you into a super soldier, right? You're not Iron Man or whatever. You're just yeah. a guy with a gun, and so the the relative distance between the different uh, weapons, even the up, the purchasable upgrades, is is relatively small. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So one one of the one of the things I think uh, that comes up to me a lot when I'm when I'm looking at issues uh, in testing, which kind of reflects some of what we've been talking about here, is kind of the scope of the impact of an issue, uh, and that that kind of goes back to the uh, like single player versus multiplayer thing. If you have a vulnerability. Or, or let's say like it's a security vulnerability in a game, and it's a network game, so you can have online multiplayer and stuff. If you have a security vulnerability where a player can do something that like gives themselves a single-player advantage, okay, that's not good, but that's not as bad as it can give them an advantage in player versus player, because that'll, that'll hork everything up. Or it gives them some advantage in a game's auction house, because that'll just nuke your economy. Diablo. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, isn't testing is is almost all about triage, right? What what's the biggest, especially as you get towards the end? What are the must fixes, right? And yeah. those can be some interesting conversations. It's oh, not all, always clear initially, right? What the impact is of a given bug. Um, I'm not sure if you're, where you're going with that. But. Oh, no, just just kind of an observation about the balancing thing is if you have a balancing issue, you know, if, if it's something that affects single player, yeah, fine, there's a whole lot more leeway there. Yeah. And if, if it's multiplayer, that's when it affects other players. That's when it's outward facing, and that's when it affects the community and the public perception and all that. So it's just kind of mirroring one of your earlier points, I'd say. Yeah, and, you know, it's... Um, it, it's it's got these games have gotten to the point where their complexity level is sort of is you know arguably sort of off the charts right with, oh, yeah. with all of the variables that you're dealing the designers are dealing with um, and then you have the combinations of those variables that's why we see tuning you know post launch you know tuning of of weapons in particular on almost every AAA you know shooter 
um, from Overwatch to Destiny to Call of Duty. I mean, I don't think I can't think of one shooter that didn't have an OP weapon that some designers snuck in there, okay. or uh, maybe just didn't didn't you know get caught in testing. Um, so yeah, balancing of a game. These days, you know, I think you can argue that it's the first six months that a big AAA shooter is, is live is, is still being balanced. Um, and you, you see this. If you go into the hardcore communities, you'll see trends where everybody's using the, you know, MK27, you know, because it's considered to be the best gun. And then the developer will nerf it, you know, typically. <laughs> Then, then everyone will shuffle over to to another weapon. Um, We're until, using Hanzo Main as an insult or something. There you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, so yeah, it's it's uh, it, you know, with the in-app purchasing that does add a an element of complexity because you know testers will test the base game and then they test sort of edge cases, but you know when you get purchases, you don't always know how successful certain. Uh, sales or will be there may be some weapon that you've priced extremely high you know fifty dollars for this golden lightsaber or something you didn't expect that many people to buy but you want to give it some good stats so they buy it and lo and behold you know it, it, the thing takes off like hotcakes and everyone's running around with this op lightsaber so it's you don't th- i think there's a wrinkle there with balancing and in-app purchases in that um, it adds a complexity to, to to sort of making sure that the game you know feels right uh, as it as it progresses. Okay, one more thing that I wanted to to, to touch on here that that we've um, brought up so far already, but I think there's some room to flesh this out a bit. Is you know okay right now the video game industry generally has a boxed product cost $60 approach and a lot of like trying to put in in in-app purchases as a way to try to um, remove the ceiling of revenue from a product because they do cost a lot. And one thing that I think, at least this is my opinion, is that if you, if you look at say video games gets compared to Hollywood a lot, right? Yeah. And, Hollywood, for better or worse, has a pretty reasonable track record when I look at movies on Box Office Mojo and you look at the budget for the movie and you look at how much it made, most often they're fairly in line. Rarely do you see movies that are are really serious bombs. Uh, So it strikes me that with movies there's, you know, a fairly mature and developed ability to estimate here's how much this property will make if we give it this much money and put this much marketing behind it and that isn't really there for video games for a multitude of reasons one uh probably the biggest one is execution on video games is far more abstract and uncertain than the development of a movie like you can get three quarters of the way in and then everything falls apart and you just have to cut it and it's a loss yeah, um, so the, the uh, you're absolutely right that um, Hollywood and and has some advantages uh, over video games in that sense, and I think we can look to uh, the film industry and, and learn some lessons. The most important one for me, I think, is the fact that 
Um, the average Hollywood product, whether it's a TV or a film, um, is sold between six and eight times. So this is this is a distribution genius idea, which is you know imagine making a hamburger and then selling that same for forty nine cents, but selling that that same hamburger you know seven or eight times. It's uh it's you know the, the develop once deploy many approach where first they hit the the big theaters, then they you know sell it for TV, then they do international, then they put it on disc and they put it on Blu-ray, you know then it streams like there's all these tiers. And they get paid all the way on down. Mm -hmm. So even if they flop in the box office, they're fairly confident they're going to recoup by, you know, rung number four or five. (laughs) And and depending on the the property, you also get merchandising where the real money from the movie is made. There's there's merchandising, which is not insignificant, although it affects only a a subset of the films made, right? Um, But not, not insignificant for its big titles. Um, and licensing of the intellectual property itself. So they figured out a way to you know, leverage a, a creative property across all these different dimensions. And even leaving aside merchandising and licensing of IP, just like you made this movie, that's all you got is a movie, you know, runs 149 minutes, uh, that itself can be sold over and over and over again. So that's the thing that I've been trying to think about is how do we do that in video games? How do we improve the distributions of the of the products so that there are not necessarily being able to resell it over and over again? Although the Nintendo's some, gotten pretty good at that one. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, you get brand fatigue. And the, the, the idea of um, obviously global distribution, you know, is part of how what I described. And so that's you know, uh, a, a sort of well, well-known um, approach in games. Um, but we're seeing a lot of different people try a lot of different things from DLC to in-app purchases to sort of episodic model, um, which is less popular, but something that I think could be sustainable where you, you know, subscribe or just to, you know, you can see it on the MMO side, but um, that could break out of that genre. Um, what you know? What is this? What is the new sort of digital model for content um, that you know, will, will allow us to um, you know have a healthier industry, have less risk in the in the business, attract more investment, uh, have more uh, variety at the top end? Uh, I mean, we have a real problem with these AAA games. Um, being so expensive that they uh, nobody takes any chances, right? Yeah, it's, it's they're all fairly similar, and they're almost all franchises now um, because of the the sort of significant risk that's that's put in there. Yeah, I, I mean that's interesting. I never, I, I I've been at least obliquely aware of the sort of repeated sales of of movies that you mentioned, but I'd never thought of it quite so clearly. And I mean that that. In context, that puts a lot of reason and sense behind all of this struggling to kind of shift how video games monetize. Because, sure, we've got our our $60 boxed product model, but, I mean, what do you do there? Do you increase the base price of the unit? Will that in turn shrink? Yeah, will that in turn shrink the customer base? Yeah. Or, Or do you drop? the price and lower the bar for entry and then have 
um, uh, in-app purchases to have, you know, you're really, let, let's call them very engaged users, uh, <laughs> subsidize those who, who, are, who don't monetize. Is that appropriate or do you start going into, okay, is it pay to win game of war, fire age, uh, uh, heavy spender kind of people, you know, the people who spend like $10,000 on the game, is that appropriate? And, and I mean, we, it's, that's kind of getting a bit off of the uh, loot box topic there too, but the, the well, business it, it, motivation well, still apply. Exactly. It's all the this sort of economy, right? And how's, mm-hmm. how's, where's the industry going and what's the right model? Um, and th- th- just to give you a, a little bit of sympathy for the developers, in the old days when we put a disc on, on the shelf, you had two weeks to, to hit some sales targets. And if you didn't hit those sales targets, you were they tossed you in the bargain bin. <laughs> you're nine ninety five. You're done. Yeah. So if you know, and your 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 new game is up there right next to Call of Duty and you know Battlefield and all the big big guys, and you're trying to launch something new. Average consumer is just going to buy what they're what they know. They're going to go with brands that they know. So. You have this tiny little window of two weeks to, to make some money, or you're done. And that was, and you literally that you know two years of your life working on this game is just gone because you didn't hit certain numbers in two weeks. So that you know when developers suddenly have the chance to extend that in any way through online downloads, whether it's you know Steam or DLC or in any way extend the life of their product and circumvent this incredibly narrow channel that retail controlled, um, you know, it's going to happen. It's much more developer friendly to, you know, for developers to build more direct relationships with their players, even if they try certain shenanigans that we've seen. Um, the idea that, uh, that, you know, Walmart can, can dictate whether my game is successful or not is, is something that I don't ever want to go back to. So the shelf uh, space used to be one of those really yeah. huge issues, and one of the reasons yeah. why EA became such a one of the things that helped EA become such a beast was that they did have enough. They they were able to develop enough clout to make themselves enough shelf space they to be successful at retail stores. Yeah. Exactly, they can demand that, and you don't have that problem online. So nope. no, uh, uh, online the, the the issue is discoverability, which is yeah. a different issue. Right, right. So Adjacent, for me, related, the model but not I the see works pretty well. I actually like what um, what they're doing, what Blizzard's doing with um, with Destiny too. Um, they the DLC model of ten to fifteen bucks for a chunk of good content. That extends a single player uh, experience and adds some uh, multi stuff for the hardcore multiplayer guys. I, I think that that model, come, you know, where you drop that every three or four months, give the developers time to make something worthwhile. Um, I don't see any reason why that can't sustain forever. And you know, World, World of Warcraft's proven it. Right, it's been year ten now or something that. They've been going. They've been playing. You know, it's a sustainable model. So, uh, it not every game can. It's right for every game, and um, you know, it's there will continue to be experiments uh, across a lot of different strategies. 
Um, but uh, that what I've seen is in knowing people on that team and a little bit about the economics. It's you know it can take a game that might only have a six to nine month life cycle and um, extend it you know potentially indefinitely, and that's really what you want. You want a kind of evergreen you know product, right? Yeah. And uh, uh, so one thing you mentioned was was to give some. Uh, uh, Slack or consideration to the developers. I, I will, uh, going back to the Battlefront uh, example, uh, uh, cast some uh, some doubt on the developers because actually the other day I was hearing someone, and and I th- so this is this is kind of through the grapevine here. This wasn't firsthand information, but uh, they they had apparently worked at Dice. And said one of the big reasons, one of the big problems here was like, you know, the announcement that, oh, you know, that that really downvoted Reddit thread and and the attempts to explain things and adjust things. One of the big problems there is uh, they won't admit that they screwed up, Mm -hmm. which is just making things worse. Yeah. So the PR side of all this is also, I think, deserves some attention. Now, it's probably worth separating out developer and publisher. Here. Oh, it always is. That's a running yeah. thread here, and it pisses me off when people don't. <laughs> because because it's well, such a trend, yeah. people always praise the developer and blame the publisher, when way more often than those people would think, the publisher is trying to save the developer from themselves. Yeah, yeah, it, it's it, there is a classic uh, paradigm, you know, developer good, publisher bad, uh, sort of uh, meme out there. Mm-hmm. Um, in this case, though, I, I it does feel like I think EA did handle a lot of the the sort of reaction and consumer outreach, didn't they? Um, the statements, you know, about the very statements they released, I think were EA rep. Yeah, they were EA reps. Um, but you know, typically the way this, this stuff works is the developer has a voice in what happens. Um, I didn't see, you know, I saw some strong arming um, by EA, but uh, typically, you know, the executives at the studio are, have a voice in the room, right? It's not it's not centralized command and control. EA knows that the, the talent is at the end of the day, you know, making these games. They typically only get involved on the economic side of it, which I could absolutely see their fingerprints on on some of these decisions. Um, but you know, the developers are incentivized to make money too, right? They they have targets and bonuses and that kind of thing. Um, so it's hard to know exactly where these decisions or originated, but it seems a little bit like the classic: uh, the cover up is worse than the crime, <laughs> you know, to some degrees. Um, and, you know, it's hard to know exactly how to deal with this kind of stuff. Sometimes um, you, you get by. They seem to get away with, uh, you know, sort of half-hearted apologies. Other times, you know, the, the, the community seems to be out for blood. Yeah, out for blood so bad you wind up getting stuff like the Big Sean 66 forgery. <laughs> what was that? I'm not familiar with that. Uh, it, some some guy went on some I can't even remember where, but posted something or was it a Twitter post where his bio said game dev at EA or something like that, and was saying like, oh, I'm getting death threats because of this thing, and and 
everyone people tried to look up who this was and no one was able to verify that it was real so it pretty much looks like a forgery now uh, at the same what? time i would not be at all surprised if developers were getting death threats about this because <laughs> you know immaturity yeah. but uh like yeah. all good as it has the, the the aura of truth yeah I'll always yeah. always wrap a lie in a truth it makes it go down easier <laughs> Um, yeah, it's it's going to be interesting to see sort of where where this nets out. Um, I, I hope that the industry would learn a lesson um, from this, and EA especially. Uh, I can't say there's a lot in my experience or past that gives me confidence that that will happen. Um, what I see is a lot of turnover at the executive level of these big corporations. So when you have that, you have lessons learned kind of over and over. Mm-hmm. People have a very short memory, and, um, you know, there are some really great executives, and there are some some uh, not so great. <laughs> the big part of that is what knowledge do you have about what's worked in the past and what hasn't worked, right? Mm-hmm. If you walk into a room and you, you have the, the experience – where you can pull out of your back pocket, oh, when this blew up, for when this happened over at Activision, we did this, this, and this, let's not do that again, right? Yeah. That is an incredibly valuable experience, and, you know, that's where only experience, or, you know, um, having been in the trenches and been through it uh, really, um, you know, will affect decisions being made moving forward. I hope this is one of those moments, you know, where yeah. this it's it's sort of so public that everyone there's it's a wider, you know, kind of conversation feels like. Yeah. It, <laughs> yeah, institutional memory is a real thing and it's important even at the executive level. Um yep. and and uh but I think going back to gambling, it it seems that and this might be because of uh uh, uh legal changes that the um, the uh, uh, CompuGotcha mechanic has been litigated out and been left into the dustbin of history. Uh, if you've heard of that one, and that's just been that's just been straight up called gambling to the point where you're not allowed in Japan, which is a big enough market that people aren't going to just abandon it in favor uh, trying to get at one of these uh, 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 gambling adjacent mechanics, as I referred to them earlier. And mm-hmm. who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe one way for uh, consumers to um, more responsibly voice their concerns or try to affect stuff is to, you know, make a reasonable argument that in in some major uh, marketplace that this mechanic is inappropriate, which you know puts pressure on on developers to. You know, make the call. Are you going to support this mechanic, or are you going to abandon this mar- this very important market? Yeah, I, I don't know. That's just kind of me I think, supposing. What I think what's going to happen is, is it's going to come down to how the mechanic is used. I, I, I mean, until you're getting money back out, I don't see the legislators getting involved. It's not mm-hmm. going to be gambling. But what I think you'll see is a course correction where you, where developers don't put core content behind this wall, right? I, I pay 60 bucks. I want Vader, damn it. You know? <laughs> but you know what I mean? Like, that's just that's just bogus, right? 
I mean, imagine buying a Star Wars action set of little characters, right? It's got eight characters, you know, in the store, little little dolls, and you don't get, you know, Han or, or Vader. It's or like, or, or uh, Palpatine, but you have to spend ten bucks to get the good makeup from the original movies, not the butt <laughs> forehead. Exactly. So, so yeah, I think you're going to see the mechanics survive for a while, morph, um, be used perhaps more marginally or optionally. Um, but I, I could be wrong. We could be in, in for a long battle, you know, where um, developers have, you know, seen so much uh, revenue from this this mechanic that they're not really willing to let it go. They, in fact, start to double down. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, you know, if they start dropping that $60 price, you know, maybe maybe the new number becomes 40 but there's a lot more stuff locked up. That, you know, that, I can see something like that happening. Mm-hmm. Or, or maybe even there's a bit more um, of the episodic style. Exactly, that would be another solution. Um, like you, like you get your you get your multiplayer game, but the single player game is spliced out episodically. Yeah, and you know a lot of people can handle a monthly payment more, a small monthly payment more than they can come up with that big sixty dollar chunk. So, you know, a couple dollars an episode is not an uncommon value proposition these days online for television shows right Mm -hmm. hulu unless you subscribe a lot of these guys are selling you you know episodes and 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 movies for 99 cents to 4.99 or something uh i can easily see games falling into a similar kind of a structure um there will always be people looking for ways to get additional sales right and and i'm again i'm fine with that and i encourage it uh because we want healthy developers that are profitable because they can grow and make more games. Uh, we just need to make sure that the value proposition to the player is, is appropriate, that it's balanced properly. And if they're not paying anything up front, okay, lots of stuff locked up. The more they pay up front, you know, probably the less stuff that should be locked up, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that's we're going to see, yeah, a lot of variants, I think. Um, this EA stuff is, was a big deal, and I know it sent you know, shockwaves to a number of publishers, yeah. uh, caused them to think a little bit differently about some games they have coming up as well. All right. With all of that said, let's move on to the Twitter box, because I don't have a mailbox, because people don't mail me, but people contact me on Twitter. Okay. Um, so I, I asked for some questions. Um, and both of them were actually on topic. So Enthusiaxon Judge Greg asked, uh, there's no sort of shortage of editorializing on gamers being ignorant and entitled given their response to the loot box issue. As the consumer and ultimate customer, how would you propose gamers make their displeasure known on business practices they find unpalatable? Hashtag 280 characters. <laughs> um, is that a question directed to me? Uh, both of us, I suppose. I guess I guess I, I uh, answered this a little bit earlier about uh, you know uh, putting pressure on um, um, legal solutions. Yeah, I mean, I guess from my my perspective, you will never hear me talk disparagingly about the video game community. Mm-hmm. Uh, I grew up a gamer. I love gamers. Um, and, you know, I'm very active in in the community in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, obviously, like any community, we do have a subset that can be caustic, but um, I would never, you know, sort of paint the, the group with a single brush. 
if people are unhappy, you know, I think they're fundamentally you vote with your pocketbook, right? Mm-hmm. So show these these companies, you know, don't complain about in-app purchases while buying in-app purchases. Um, you're negating your own voice. Uh, but beyond that, um, you know, I think most developers now do have a method for um, providing feedback, um, and the best ones will listen. Um, and you know, all you can do is sort of get together with other people that feel similar. And we've seen with EA that you know can have a massive effect. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it, you know, I think a lot of these grievances are completely legitimate. Um, so I would not, you know, disparage uh, gamers who complain about the move, the changing economy, in any way. I think I think it's absolutely legitimate for a consumer to um, just you know, voice their displeasure with some of these design decisions. Yeah, I, I would say that um, kind of coming in on all sides of your observation there, there are some people, and not to say all gamers, but there are some who because of the advent of free-to-play games, kind of take the... Uh, don't recognize that that move towards games as a service in free-to-play, they kind of they kind of take it as a given that I should have access to the game super cheap or free. And, you know, there are misconceptions about how profitable they are. Um, but... At the same time, there's uh, uh, um, players who... You know, they they are displeased. They don't buy the in-app purchases, but there are others who buy enough of the in-app purchases to make it uh, profitable. So that voting with the wallet can be muted a bit by the other people who drown them out because that ceiling on financial interaction in the game's been removed. Uh, so coming around another direction is try to be. If, if you have the time, if you're engaged enough to be upset about a certain direction with the game, care enough to be one of the super engaged users that engages on the forums, communicates with the uh, customer support team in a very you know polite and professional way. Don't be like railing and sending death threats. But if you add your voice cause in a constructive way to the conversation, that is something that I have seen... Uh, being paid attention to. Sure, there's a lot of attention being paid to the really loud people who are complaining about very real mechanical problems, but if there is a sustained chorus of people saying that, you know, this monetization method in a game that I like and I want to see do well is exploitative and I don't appreciate it, it you know, it'll it'll get paid attention to, or like, you know, the squeaky wheel gets the oil. If 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 you're a wheel and you feel like you need oil, you squeak. That's a weird metaphor. <laughs> it is. So, yeah, and, and these days with social media, you know, we all have a platform, mm-hmm. right? So anyone that can really make as big a stink as you want to. <laughs> um, and, yeah, as, as, as Nick says, like, if you can come with constructive uh, criticism and potential f- fixes, right, that we have a thing – and just there's a sort of common phrase in business that you know bring a problem. If you're gonna bring a problem, bring it. Bring a solution. Mm. And you know, ideally two or three. Um, so if you're pounding the table about something, like you know, bring us. You know, make a recommendation. Get on social media. Companies pay attention to this kind of stuff, and nobody wants bad press. So yeah. uh, 
you may be able to have more impact than you think, even as a single user. <laughs> Nobody wants bad press, but they, they absolutely do want you. There's the phrase, uh, good press, bad press, just spell our name right. So maybe start spelling the developer's name wrong all the time. Uh, okay Uh, one more question from the monster closet how will the Star Wars Battlefront 2 mess affect Anthem and Anthem being the uh, uh, kind of mass effect in Star Wars game and I would suspect that Anthem might be far enough along that it won't necessarily affect it too much I mean there might be some concerns and some little tweaks that are made to the um, marketing and monetization plans, but your core experience probably isn't going to be affected that much. I would suspect that if it was going to affect anything, it would affect more future relations between Disney and EA or future titles from EA in the Star Wars universe. Yeah, it looks like um, they're saying fall of 2018, so we're still a year out. It might be time to make some corrections to the economy um, if they want to. I've got to think that it has at least been a topic of discussion. I don't have any inside info on this one, but um, given Disney's involvement in the uh, fiasco uh, around Battlefront, I'm pretty confident that they're thinking carefully about how to not screw screw up Anthem. Yeah, I mean, I, I would, I would, because one of the big issues with Battlefront is that it is a multiplayer game, and there are all these other issues. I mean, I, I and and Anthem is done by a completely different team. It's a completely different style. Um, would that, I, I suspect that the the main effect would probably be Disney saying, "Don't screw this one up." <laughs> Yeah, they may... I mean, I mean, because uh, one more thing, if if it was Disney putting pressure on on EA to change the monetization in Battlefront, clearly they have clout, if that's true. Right. But I mean, it, it, there are so many differences for Anthem, you can't necessarily make a one to one comparison. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, and there's so many stakeholders involved in something like this; it's really hard to know which way it's going to go. And we sort of assume that Disney will be a correcting influence and that, that maybe isn't, isn't 100% assured either. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's going to be interesting to see um, how, how it is. It's, it's, it's a good question because it is, it, it, from an IP perspective, obviously it's, you know, in the same universe, but from a gameplay perspective, very different. Um, Bioware traditionally hasn't done a lot with this in-app purchases stuff, um, so I would be surprised if they if we saw a lot of it in, in Anthem. All right, and now it's time for our war story. So, Jason, I did actually remember to warn you about this ahead of time. Oh, uh, yes. I, I have a bad history with surprising guests asking him for this stuff. Uh, so, do you have any interesting little anecdotes from your extensive uh, experience in the games industry that you would uh, you think would be fun yeah, to share? I, I thought of one fun little story. Uh, while I was at um, Midway, uh, Midway Games out in Chicago, um, back in the PS2 days, 
We're going way back. Um, we had a new CEO. We won't name name names, but uh, we, we had our first sort of presentation of our game um, to the CEO, who didn't come from the video game industry, and so there was a lot of um, sort of uh, concern whether this guy, you know, sort of knew knew what he was doing. Was he sort of, uh, you know, wh- how would it go when he reviewed our games? You know, did he was he a gamer? We didn't we didn't really know. Um, so we fired up the game and, um, you know, we had our character and he's sort of standing there idling with this cool motion capture animation. And we had, I was the art director, so I'll focus on the visuals. We had this cool drip, drip, you know, of, of this pipe. Uh, and then, um, we even had a puddle below it. And when the pipe dripped in the puddle, it did a little splash, which back then was like, Ooh, you know, and uh, a little rat running down the hallway is pretty cool. A little opening scene. Guy grabs the controller and he just jams it to the side, flies into the wall where the camera like flies through the character's head and just stares at like there's like zoomed in on like eight pixels and they're huge. And he points at the screen and he goes, How come those pixels are so big? Can we do yeah. something? <laughs> and and we all just looked at each other like, oh, God, this is going to be a nightmare. <laughs> like, there was literally, like, can we do something about that? He's asking about, like, when you fly into a texture. And, you know, that was something that there is no solution for, really, <laughs> until 10 years later, you know. like, um, And so, yeah, I, that, we all just kind of looked at each other. And it was fun to watch my boss scramble. Um on that one <laughs> it's a that sounds like a very like lewis black kind of a moment <laughs> the first thing that i thought of was was his gag there's not enough deodorant in the world for this conversation <laughs> or that's one of the moments where your brain comes to a screeching halt and the left side of your brain looks at the right side of your brain and says it's dark in here and we may die <laughs> yeah it actually reminds me of another time we had a big review and uh, one of the characters, like the swing of the sword, like the it, sort of his arm went too far or passed through his other arm or something. And, of course, the big exec, you know, not the CEO, but like one of the big, big shots, he points it out. And it's like, oh, looks like a little little problem, uh, you know, with the animations there. So like, you got you got to say something to justify your presence, huh? Exactly. Showing his like incredibly limited knowledge. But he was right. And he's like, who's responsible for that? And we're in a room of like 70, maybe 100 people. And, uh, oh, that, and that that's bad form. Right. Well, and it was pretty funny because, uh, like the, uh, my, the boss, the head of the project's like, well, that'd be the animation department. And so he looks over to this guy named Jan, who's head of animation, who he goes, uh, I think that was, uh, I think Dave worked on that. <laughs> and he, he sort of stepped backwards. Like, and the way the lighting was and everything, he sort of stepped in, literally into the shadows. He goes, well, that was Dave. And he just faded into darkness. <laughs> <laughs> and poor Dave was over there like, uh, uh, I think the interns worked on that one. you know. But there was no interns in the room. Like, you, There only had to be a certain level to, to be in the room, right? And uh, he was sort of left with the hot potato. Oh. But um, we, we joked about it afterwards as uh, Jan's ninja move. <laughs> that uh, you could never, you know, just got to pull a ninja move when somebody, you know, throws you the hot potato. So that was another fun one. <laughs> <laughs> That's 
Okay. Well, um, that that was a pretty cool conversation. I, I, I think you, you 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 successfully blew up any. Uh, I I, th- I think uh, you or we as a unit successfully blew up the argument about pay to win versus a uh, 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 good matchmaking algorithm. That's one of my big takeaways from this one. Yeah, I mean it's we'll continue to see, right? People, yeah. there are a lot of really smart people making games, and and someone may figure it out. Um, I just feel passionately about what I think it should should work, but you know I've been doing this long enough to realize I've been wrong many times. Uh, <laughs> I didn't think people wanted a game on their little the little screens, you know, in their pockets. I, I, you know, I I thought that one for a while. Um, so you know, I've I've missed missed some big big trends. Uh, should have bought more Bitcoin, for example. <laughs> uh, we're all kicking ourselves on that one. But no, it's been a lot of fun, Nick. Thank, thank you so much. All right. Is there anything you'd uh, you have that you'd like to promote? I know you got a website. Um, yeah. Well, my personal site uh, is Kaler Planet, K-A-E-H-L-E-R Planet dot com, and that's really mostly my artwork. Um, you can see some game art. You can see some personal art um, and some of that kind of stuff. Uh, and then my company, Asylum Labs, A-S-Y-L-U-M-L-A-B-S-I-N-C dot com. Uh, is where where you can see some of the slot machines we've been making. Uh, speaking of gambling, so we have both uh, free to play products and sort of real money actual gambling games in Europe. And um, our company was formed to sort of target that crossover space, the sort of emergence of um, something new, something that includes gambling, um, but also traditional video game mechanics. Would you ever do a crossover with the Asylum Movie Group? <laughs> a big fan of those guys. They do good stuff. Get a get a um, get a get a Sharknado machine in there. <laughs> they they actually did a Sharknado slot machine already. Uh, was, okay, well, was, how, uh, how about how about one of the really, one of the surprisingly good Asylum movies, uh, like uh, Abe, Abe Lincoln versus Zombies or a Paranormal Entity? That could be fun. I mean that that could be a lot of fun. I I, uh, I, I mean I'm. Licensed product is a big part of the slots industry. Um, typically, license holders tend to overvalue their licenses. But I, <laughs> why am I not surprised <laughs> on that one? Yeah, yeah, I haven't uh, spoken to the sound guys in particular. <laughs> okay. Um, well, thanks again for coming on. Absolutely, Nick. Have and, a great day. Yeah, and if there's anybody out there who'd like to see me write about uh, uh, anything on the Behind the Line article series or hear us talk about anything here on Behind the Line Radio, you can always get in touch with me at kinetic at enthusiacs.com. That's K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K at enthusiacs.com. Or reach out to me on Twitter, because that's what everyone is more likely to do. At Kinetic Knows, K-Y-N-E-T-Y-K, K-N-O-W-S. Thanks to uh, Judge Greg and the Monster Closet for questions this week, and we'll see you all next time. Behind the Line Radio is presented by Enthusiacs.com. For more podcasts, let's plays, articles, videos, reviews, and more, visit us at Enthusiacs.com. Also, send us a comment on Twitter at Enthusiacs. View us on YouTube. 
channel Enthusiacs and like us on Facebook, Enthusiacs.